0: It's uh, obviously the final passage of uh, 1 Kings, and what I will do, I want to take you through concisely these 28 verses, then I'm going to read 29 to 40. We're just going to acknowledge uh, what happens after that, taking us up to the end of the book, but I'll reserve a little bit of time to take you through what happens in 29 and 40, because that is the climax of the story. Uh, and we would do well to to read that and to understand that. Because we're at the last of these um, Sunday evenings in 1 Kings, I just saw a little bit of revision or refreshing be helpful. So I've asked the, the tech guys to put up some of our, the basic points, which those of us who were together a few months ago saw as we came to 1 Kings. What's What's 1 Kings all about? We called the series House of Cards because this book is all about how precarious the kingdom of Israel and Judah are, as sinful men are working out their agendas. But what more specifically is the purpose of 1 Kings? Here we go. It's to show how God keeps his promises to preserve a people for himself and works his providence to teach us to trust him in brilliant as well as in dark days. However dark our days might be, however much you might be distracted by excitement, one king keeps our feet on the rock of God's word. The focus is, as we've seen, the reign of Solomon who came to bring prosperity to Israel But then the failure of Solomon and later kings and the insistent, relentless call of God to his people through his prophets, especially Elijah, who's given a lot of treatment, to come back to him. And in 1 Kings, we're looking at a history of 400 years. 970 is the beginning, 970 BC, through to uh, 561 BC. At least they're they're the two books, beg pardon. Our book is chopped off. Because the writer Kings, he needed to find somewhere to make it two volumes. Otherwise, it would have been too much. We might not read it so carefully. So 1 Kings ends in 852 BC with the death of Ahaziah, the king of Israel. So we've got in those two books a 400-year history from Solomon and the high point of the king to the, the near destruction of, of the kingdom in the exile of people to Babylon. Two F words for you. Things are very fragile God's people and their leaders are very fragile. God is always very faithful to chastise his people and to show them grace. And nothing changes. Our God in Jesus Christ is the same wonderful chastising but gracious God and we are so fragile and how much we need grace. Two things we need to remember as we just refresh ourselves and prepare to come to this chapter. Firstly, 1 Kings is a book of promises, promises made and fulfilled among these people. And secondly, it's a study particularly in godly and ungodly leadership. And i outline if you wanted that refresher or if you're new to 1 Kings. Pretty much the first half we see a flourishing kingdom in 1 Kings 1 to 11, And then 12 to 22, we see a fractured kingdom. Things go to the the great high points of Solomon established on his throne and the temple built and God's glory filling it and how quickly things fracture. So we see a parade of bad kings with the occasional good king and some good prophets calling them back to God. So... A reminder, or perhaps brand new to you. That's something of Kings, and particularly One Kings. Let's come to this thrilling but very sobering passage tonight. And I'm calling this passage Truth to Power. Truth to Power. That's a phrase you probably heard of before. I found the origin of it last week. There was a civil rights leader um, in the American Black Civil Rights Movement in 1942, Bayard Rustin. Who said, the primary social function of a religious society, that means Christian people, is to speak the truth to power. Because who else is going to speak the truth to people and systems of power? Everybody else just has that impulse to curry favour and stand with the power, hoping that some of the privileges of power rub off on them. And that's a church's great temptation. We want to go where there's power in society and get some of that power and be safe and snug and popular and powerful ourselves. And this story is about one brave, lonely, God-honoring prophet who stood up to speak the truth to power at great personal danger. Let's see some of these details then. So Ahab, we met him again last week, a man consumed by greed and ruthlessness in his snatching of the vineyard from this man called Naboth. And when Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, verse 2, goes down to see the king of Israel, what does he hear? The king is still obsessed with power and wealth and getting more and being more in his own eyes, in the eyes of his people. So he's obsessed with this parcel of land belonging to the Arameans called Ramoth-Gilead. That was just off the ancient equivalent of the M1. There were good travel connections, so it is a wealthy place, and Ahab is killing himself, he's missing out on all the tax revenue. It belongs to us. What are we doing about it? So he asked poor Jehoshaphat, will you come with me? And Jehoshaphat is a really kind-hearted guy and immediately swears allegiance in verse 4. His people, himself, and his people equipment. My horses as your horses. But something checks Jehoshaphat's spirit. Should we get God on our side? Or that, maybe that's doing him a disservice. Should we find out if God is on our side? And seek, verse 5, the counsel of the Lord together. And then we see the power religion. This impressive amassed Display of religious leaders. Suddenly, maybe at the clicking of a fingers of fingers, there's four hundred of them in verse six. And they get the answer, should we go to war against Shemoth Gilead? We get the question, or should the king refrain? Surprise, surprise. The king's lackeys say, Oh go, and they give the almighty seal of approval the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Well, that is enough for Ahab. He must have been exultant about that. But I think King Jehoshaphat smells a rat. Maybe he smells 400 rats. And, and he wonders if there's any other prophet who's not part of this powerful, impressive display of, let's call it blind, slavish obedience. And it's very interesting, isn't it? Is there one more, said Jehoshaphat? And the king says, Yes, there is. Verse 8, but I hate him. Because he never prophesies anything good about me. But always bad. Well, we don't want a preacher who's going to say things which aren't good for us, which don't make us feel good, or prophesy stunning victories In our lives. It's almost as if Ahab might just have a troubled conscience. The man has spent most of his life trying to extinguish his conscience. And those parts of his conscience that he couldn't extinguish. His terrifying wife Jezebel did a pretty good job to extinguish him herself. But there's something there. Ahab is not comfortable. And this is a stunning detail. This powerful man even knows the name of the man he hates. He could have conveniently forgotten his name or never mentioned him or denied his existence. But troubled men often have troubled consciences and very good memories. Even for those who disturb their consciences. So he's given a name, Micaiah, son of Imla. So with all this power religion, which is affirming the king and his project, we know we're going to get potentially quite a different story from this one prophet. Well, Joshua, thinks this is slightly rough talk and tries to temper uh, the king. The end of verse 8, but the king calls for Micaiah. And then it's quite a show, isn't it? It's quite a display. We might think a dusty little town, a dusty little place where these two robe kings are sitting, by the gates at the threshing floor, but actually Samaria is the capital city. The threshing floor is an important place, the city gates the most important place, at the city. So this is more like a St. Paul's Cathedral. This is where religion and political power certainly came together in the ancient kingdom of Israel. And the two kings are there in their royal robes and all the prophets prophesying before them. And get this, how impressive power religion can be Zedekiah, I bet they were all so envious when he did this. He makes, he gets his iron horns. And they think, why didn't I do that? I could have really stood out. I would have been really eye catching and impressed my professional peers or, prof- or perhaps impressed the king. But he's there with his iron horns. And he gives this incredible promise oh, from the Lord, verse 11. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. Wow. And I think double wow. That is deeply impressive. And the implication is clear, O king. All you have to do is believe and it shall be done. Now in secular parlance, they call that manifesting. You come across that? You set your heart on something You believe it so badly, you live as if you already have it. And that is your pathway to success. Now, in church circles, we often call it faith. We so want something. We so can't believe that it won't be ours. We so cannot believe that the Lord Almighty would not want it to be ours we trick ourselves into thinking God has it up his divine sleeve for us. Be that getting rich, getting married, getting comfortable, getting out of serving others. We manifest different things and we match our prayers sometimes accordingly, convinced the Lord wants us to to enjoy whatever victory we set our minds on. And it's barely baptized egotism, self-centeredness. And heaven's not going to play our game. And not for us, and not for Ahab, no amount of wanting, praying for it, getting quack religious messages, and believing it is going to make heaven align with our wills however many prophets are, shouting at us and cheering us on or slapping us on the back. Because they all do that, verse 12, attack, attack, and be victorious. We've got a word, the Lord will give it into the king's hand. But they had no word. But the messenger, meanwhile, is in the taxi. He's a king's driver, and he goes to Micaiah's front door. And I have in my mind, as as I read verse 13 and 14, He's one of those Cockney cab drivers. Anybody been to London you've got a chipper Cockney cab driver? And he's driving and he leans over and just through the glass, I think he seems to be saying, look, Mackay, mate, just, you know, just keep it down. toe the line. Tell him what he wants to hear. Don't cause any aggro. I can do a better Cockney uh, impression, but I won't, won't overcook it. Not here, anyway. Which is my Cockney spin on the end of verse 13. Let your word agree with theirs. Look, they're popular. They live in the quiet life. We want the quiet... Surely, Micaiah, you want the quiet life. Just tell him what he wants to hear. Micaiah says, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me, as surely as the Lord lives. Well, that sounds fairly ominous, doesn't it? And things get darker still. He arrives, he's asked, attack or refrain. And... Verse 15, Micaiah's answer is thick with sarcasm. How do we know it's thick with sarcasm? It was so unexpected that the king feels that Micaiah must be insulting him. He says as much in verse 16. And maybe his voice is dripping with deliberate sarcasm. And Micaiah shares a vision. He saw, he says, Israel scattered on the hills as leaderless, shepherdless sheep. And if a nation with no true leader is led into battle, the nation will not win. God will not be manifested into action to serve the selfish whims of an evil man. The best thing is that they go home in peace. Well, of course, the king is furious. And Macaulay gives him another vision which is actually even more disturbing. Do you notice it's a vision of the heavenly courtroom from verse 19. A deceiving spirit comes forward in verse 21 and says to the Lord, I will entice him. I'll put a lying... I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all his prophets. So Ahab, if you hadn't worked it out already, you've just been deceived, is what Micaiah is saying. Now let's be clear. God is not deceiving Ahab. Quite the opposite. God in his infinite mercy and condescension is reasoning with and pleading with Ahab. You're on the brink of national disaster. I'm not blessing you. Do not attack. You will not be victorious. And Micaiah's prophetic burden is to report that vision and to say the Lord has decreed disaster for you. Now talk about speaking truth to power. Talk about leaving it all on the pitch. As they say, and making himself very vulnerable indeed. And he's punched for his pains. Zedekiah cannot bear to hear such treachery. Zedekiah cannot bear to see his career as he has been trying to ascend the ladder, because he's the he's the goring horns man, isn't he, of verse 11. He can't see his, his career about to slide, because now it's a battle of two ideologies, two worldviews. The powerful religious majority, and what they say, and their agenda, or the powerless religious minority, and what God says and God's agenda. And that's a good point to to pause, isn't it? Surely we can make this connection with our day and perhaps all ages of the church, that power religion rarely tells the truth. Power religion just wants power. And it wants society and society's elites to like it, to honour it, to affirm it, And to promote it. We all want to be part of a crowd. We live largely isolated, scattered lives as Christian disciples. We feel in our workplaces lonely and often overwhelmed. We want to be in a crowd. That's a good impulse if the crowd is the Lord's people. And their leaders are the Lord's servants. But let's not assume that where there's a crowd and there's noise, even where there's energy and joy... That the Lord is always there. The Lord was not amongst the 400. And nobody stopped to ask that question. Is he with us? They just assumed that he was. They'd long stopped seeking him or his truth. So that when that crunch time came, they had no truth to tell but just their own careers and comfort to promote. Well, Zedekar is furious. The king is furious. And Micaiah is on bread and water in prison. Verse 27. And know nothing else until I return. Verse 28, Micaiah's last words... If you return. Because this minority of one is convinced that he is speaking the words of God. And those words aren't just for the king, they are for the nation. Mark my words, all you people. So what do we take away before we read the, the way the passage goes? We need to be people of the word. People who live with integrity, who listen to and tremble at the word of God. People who don't go with the godless majority, even when they're singing their hymns and making their religious noises. But people who go with God and seek his word and have the very highest standards of integrity from their own Christian leaders, and if we've learnt anything from One King's, it's this: that God's word always comes powerfully true. So let's pick up the reading at verse twenty-nine. I believe the words are going to come on the screen. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I'll enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his 32 chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commander saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, ah, surely this is the king of Israel. So they turned to attack him, but when Jehoshaphat cried out, the chariot commander saw that he was not the king of Israel and stopped pursuing him but someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of israel between the sections of his armor the king told his chariot driver wheel around and get me out of the fighting i've been wounded all day long the battle raged and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the arameans the blood from his wound ran onto the floor of the chariot and that evening he died As the sun was setting, as Christ spread through the army, every man to his town, everyone to his land. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him there. They washed his chariot at a pool in Samaria, where the prostitutes bathed, and the dogs licked up his blood, as the word of the Lord had declared. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did... The palace he built and inlaid with ivory and the cities he fortified. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Ahab rested with his fathers. And Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. And Ahaziah didn't do much better than his father. The last paragraph of one Kings tells you. He just continued the religious policies and caused his people to sin and provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger. Jehoshaphat, who escaped that battle, well, he did. he did better. He was a good man. But he lacked quite the courage expected of him. He's a man of integrity, but the high places, you read in verse 43, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices, burn incense there. He was tempted, as every leader is, to have people not too ruffled. Not to make himself too unpopular by following through where he could and should have. And these kings keep on turning and succeeding one another and dying until the kingdom is all but snuffed out at the end of two kings. But for our episode, as I said, God's word comes powerfully true because it always does in the book of 1 Kings. And it's an extraordinary request, isn't it? Verse 30, Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, I'm going to wear military fatigues. Can you put all your royal insignia on, please? Now, I must confess, I haven't, I haven't researched ancient Near Eastern battle tactics and expectations. I kind of wonder if it was expected that the kings would have their royal insignia on. You might find it out later on and tell us. At the very least, Ahab's being a snake, isn't he? I'm going to get camouflaged up. Can you be my decoy, please? And extraordinarily, Jehoshaphat lets it pass. So, they engage, the two armies engage one another, and the king of Aram gives his commanders the command, look out for the king of Israel. So when they see Jehoshaphat, obviously he is the man, and he cries out. I, I, I wonder, what does he cry out? Does he say, no, it's not me. It's, it's him, or it's not me. He's somewhere else. Maybe they recognize his southern vows, his long vows, because this is in the far north. And they think, no, he doesn't even sound right. He's not our man. We don't know. So it looks as if Ahab's self-preservation policy might just work. And he might just lead his people to victory. But he hadn't reckoned with the random bow shots of the Lord God Almighty. You notice that in verse 34? Someone drew his bow, as he probably had thousands of times before, thousands of times before in archery practice and in earlier battles, drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel with an almost impossible shot between the sections of his armor. What a fluke. None of the bookies in Aramea would give odds on that happening. It just would not happen. It was a fluke. It was a random fluke. No. God always shoots his arrows. He does everything. He is behind and fully knows about, as Jesus says, the fall of a sparrow from the sky. And no less so, he is behind the string as the archer bends the bow. Think of this, if you will, and it would be true, this is a a random bow shot of an unnamed Aramaean archer. But it is the intended judgment of God. We won't turn it up, but Ahab was given a promise that he would have an unpleasant death. And God always keeps his promises and sees the fulfillment of his word. I was with a Christian in the last year, given a terminal diagnosis. And and they said to me, I'm not scared of diagnosis I just don't want it to be awful when I die. And I said, I hear morphine's a wonderful thing. I'm sure you'll be fine. And we both know, don't we, the Lord will be with you. And we talked about his comforts and his presence as we face death. We all want to die painlessly with some modicum of dignity. And leaving happy memories for those who have loved us and those we love. Ahab died a slow, painful, shame-filled, humiliating death. Propped, verse 35, in his blood-soaked chariot. Perhaps slipping and sliding with his chariot driver and his personal archer in his own blood on the floor of the chariot. And at the end of that day, he dies. And the hope of Israel on the battlefield that day died with him. As they brought his body back, verse 37, they washed his chariot in a pool used by prostitutes. That's just an interesting detail, so the ancient readers could distinguish that one from the other half a dozen pools. We're supposed to wrinkle our noses. That detail. Ahab's greatness, his chariot washed off in the pool used by sex workers. And do you remember somebody else, Jezebel, her blood will be shortly licked by dogs, just as Ahab's was here under the judgment of the Almighty. Oh, he had, if you're interested, the historian says, palaces and ivory. He had plenty of bling, plenty of signs of royal success, but he didn't have the only success necessary. A heart obedient to God. And why not? Because his heart resisted God's word. He rested, verse 40, with his father's I don't think he rested well and he will not rest well at the judgment. A man with all of life's privileges and power and favor but he missed the one thing necessary to hear the word of God and to obey it. It's an uncomfortable place to end a book, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable place to end a sermon. I hope you can join some of the dots in your life. Extra humble alertness to the word of God. To which God is always faithful. And extra humble adoration of God's truth speaking prophet the one-man minority, Jesus Christ, who never saw earthly affirmation, status, power, who knew far worse than bread and water. He was hungry and tormented with thirst at the cross. His prison was our sins. And he died trusting the word And he died proving to all the world God's powerful word always comes true. So we trust him and we follow him and we're safe in that. Let's pray. So loving God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our prophet, our priest and our king. We are so sorry, Lord, for the ways which we play with and often neglect your word. What peace, what fellowship with you we forfeit and what foolish danger we wander into. Thank you for your shepherding, constraining love. Lord, bring us close to yourself as another week starts, we pray. Confident in our shepherding Saviour and contrite and broken-hearted before his word. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.